Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. In this talk, Jenny Thorpe tells us about the White Rajas of Sarawak. Part A. Well, this is the story of the Brook family from the West Country. Despite coming from an undistinguished minor gentry stock, they came to rule an area which, at its greatest extent, was equal to that of England. Their kingdom, carved out of the island of Borneo, lasted from September 1841 to Christmas Eve 1941, when the Japanese arrived at the capital, Kuching. I have chosen this subject in part because it illustrates a typical pattern of colonisation. First comes the gung-ho risk-taker, James, followed by his able nephew, Charles, who secured and extended the borders and the administration. Then matters stagnate under his disinterested son, Viner, despite his father's efforts to include his younger, more capable brother, Bertram. A further point of interest is that their rule, while absolute, was in strict contrast to the superiority of the white Saab attitude so clearly evident in the East India Company. Following World War II, such independent states were seen as anachronisms and Brook rule came to an end. In May 1946, Malcolm MacDonald proclaimed Sarawak a British crown colony. The early history of Borneo, the world's fourth largest island, remains hazy. It's not until the 15th century that matters become somewhat clearer. Around the 14th to 15th century, Islam was introduced and adopted by Awan Kaleng Barata, who became the first Sultan of Brunei in 1476. His power spread to include the region of the Sarawak River. The control of succeeding Sultans fluctuated, so that for much of the time, the Datu that is to say the hereditary Malay chiefs, were left in peace to run their own affairs. The first written record comes from the Italian chaplain to Ferdinand Magellan, who, in 1521, described a society divided between Muslim Malays and pagan Dayak. There was constant intertribal warfare among the latter whose main aim was to prove their superiority by collecting, and then smoking, the heads of their enemies. Chinese traders plied the coastal waters, seeking the jungle produce of the interior, <coughs> such as bird's nest and beeswax. In time, they would form a significant minority element. In the 17th century, British and Dutch traders arrived primarily in search of pepper. But it was not until the late 18th century that the Dutch established a permanent settlement at Pontiac. 
It was the Dutch, whose trading interests had moved into the East Indies, who would provide the rivals to the East India Company. In 1830, antimony ore was discovered, being mined by the Chinese. This was highly valued by the Europeans, since it was essential for the creation of metal alloys. As a result, Kuching, the future capital, suddenly developed from a sleepy village to a bustling port with a population of approximately 3,000. Sensing new opportunities for revenue, the Sultan sent a governor to enforce his authority and taxes. This increase in European shipping brought with it the unfortunate and perennial curse of piracy. Well, I think the time has come to introduce James Brooke to the scene. James was born in Benares in 1803, the only son of an East India Company judge and tax collector. He also had four sisters, a matter of significance since he would produce no legitimate heir. In 1815, he was sent home to be educated at Norwich Grammar. This was not a success. And after two years, when his parents returned and settled in Bath, he rejoined the family and a private tutor was employed. In 1819, he became an ensign in the 6th Native Infantry of the East India Company, rising to lieutenant. In January 1825, he led an attack on some Burmese rebels. Six days later, he led a second and was severely wounded, probably in the chest. As a result, he was invalided out of the army and sent back to England with a small pension. During his lengthy recuperation, he spent most of his time reading and, it would appear, daydreaming as to his future. Two things would prove influential. The book, entitled the Eastern Seas by the British navigator George Windsor Earl, who describes Sarawak in most encouraging terms. Further, James noted that it lay between the two trading monopoly areas laid down by treaty in 1824 between the Dutch and the British. The second inspiration was the career and achievements of Sir Stamford Raffles, who, Recognising the strategic value of Singapore for entrepot trade and as a naval base, raised the British flag on that marshy, mosquito-infested island in February 1819. Eager for adventure and success, James persuaded his reluctant father to finance a trading venture to China. This first experience of the East proved a flop. However, in 1834, his father died, leaving him £30,000. Now he had the funds to try again. With his inheritance, he purchased a 142-ton schooner from the Royal Yacht Squadron. He then published a prospectus in the Athenaeum magazine, inviting young men to join him on a voyage of maritime discovery and scientific inquiry to Sarawak and the Salilis. There was no mention of his dream 
of establishing linked trading posts from Singapore. In June 1839, he landed in Singapore before sailing on to Sarawak with an official mission from the island to thank Governor Hassim, the designated successor to the Sultan, for his help in rescuing the crew of a British ship wrecked after loading antimony in Kuching. On arrival, he discovered Hassim was facing a rebellion from aggrieved Chinese miners and some disaffected Malay chiefs. After spending some weeks exploring the coast, he sailed on to the Salibis <coughs> as intended. However, sensing an opportunity, he returned in August in the hopes of exploiting the situation. Indeed, he was able to persuade Hassim to promise to hand over Sarawak should he quell the rebellion. While this was quickly achieved, you will not be surprised to learn that Hassim proved very reluctant to honour his promise. But James, now 37, was determined. He wrote to his mother, I am going to settle in Borneo. I am about to endeavour to plant there a pioneer of European knowledge and native improvement. Hardly ideas that would find favour with the East India Company, whose only interest was profit, but ones which would have found favour with his hero Raffles. After more prevarication, this is how James described the events of September 1841. Repairing on board the yacht, I mustered my people, explained my intentions and mode of operation, and, having loaded the vessel's guns and brought her broadside to bear, I proceeded on shore with a detachment fully armed and taking position at the entrance of the palace, demanded and obtained immediate audience. Hassim then signed a document handing Sarawak over to James on condition of a small annual payment to the Sultan and a promise to uphold the religion of Islam. James visited the Sultan in July 1842 and his status was confirmed. Now Sarawak was his. The challenge was, what to do next? I shall now sidestep for a brief look at the career of Raffles, his hero, 1781-1826. Raffles' background was even less distinguished than that of James, receiving only a very limited education. Having joined the East India Company as a clerk, he was sent to the East Indies rising swiftly to become governor of Java. The island had recently been wrested from the Dutch, and he immediately set about not only reforming the administration, but taking a genuine interest in the history and culture. He arranged the survey and clearance of the 9th century Buddhist temple of Borobudur, as well as repairing the Hindu temple of Krambanan. He studied Chinese methods of agriculture, as well as flora and fauna, creating a botanical garden in Bogor. Raffles had no time for the pretensions of the White Sarb Society, and James would follow suit. The Treaty of Vienna in 1815 returned Java to the Dutch, and Raffles sailed home, writing the history of the island 
it ran to three weighty tones. From 1817, now governor of Sumatra, he saw the strategic potential of the island of Singapore. Fortunately, there was no existing Dutch presence, and it was quickly purchased in 1819. While Raffles himself only spent a few months there, he sought to oversee its development. Within 20 years, Singapore was booming, and James dreamed his new country could follow its example and become an equally successful trading post. Ill health and exhaustion forced Raffles' retirement to England, where he died the day before his 46th birthday, 1826. It's timely to remember the strain on the health of those living and working in that part of the world. Raffles himself lost his first wife and four of his five children. Malaria and cholera were rife and frequently fatal. Another consideration being that it could take up to four months to sail back to England when the Suez Canal was completed in 1869 this greatly reduced the time by almost half. Returning to James, contrary to Hassim's advice, he pardoned the Malay chiefs who had sided with the miners and again promised to uphold the laws of Brunei and Islam. Then, in 1843, supported by Captain Keppel R.N., he began the first of four successful campaigns against the pirates and the Dayaks of the interior in order to assert his authority. You may wonder why the Royal Navy would support such an expedition. Well, the reason lay in the Admiralty Court in Singapore, which paid head money for every pirate killed. However, who was to differentiate between a pirate and a Dayak who was simply trying to preserve his independence? The rewards for the captain and his crew would amount to thousands. Keppel's nickname was Raja Laut, King of the Seas. He would go on to become an admiral, giving his name to the shipyards of Singapore. As Brook rule spread further into the interior, troubles would inevitably flare up, but due to the chronic inability of the Dayaks to unite, this could be suppressed with the help of loyal tribes. It should be noted there were two distinct groups, the Sea Dayaks, and the land dyaks, and between them, of course, several tribes within those two groups. In order to bolster his authority and collect taxes, James planned to build wooden forts in strategic places along the rivers, the only form of transport. This system would be put fully into operation under his nephew Charles, who named them all after the women of the family. Initially, James had hoped for cooperation with Brunei, especially when Hassim, now a dear friend and support, returned in 1844 with the hope of succeeding the Sultan on his death. Sadly, Hassim and his brothers were all assassinated by their political rivals two years later. Brunei would remain an enemy after James launched a savage attack in revenge. Meanwhile, James built himself a comfortable wooden bungalow where he welcomed all and sundry. 
Malays, Chinese, and occasionally Dayaks. There were no social barriers, and the administration remained decidedly ad hoc. Having run aground, Captain Sir Edward Belcher and his crew stayed with James for several weeks. One member, Frank Marriott, was a talented artist, and when he returned to England, he published a book, Borneo and the Indian Archipelago, with beautiful illustrations. Keppel too wrote a book about his exploit, so the English audience was no longer completely ignorant of Sarawak and its dashing, courageous English Rajah. As a result, when he returned to England in 1847, he found he was a Victorian celebrity, a hero. He was granted an honorary degree, a Royal Geographical Society medal, and the freedom of the City of London. He was knighted and even received by Queen Victoria as the Raja of Sarawak. However, much to his annoyance, it would take until 1863 for the British government to officially recognize him as such. He also received many proposals of marriage and the wealthy Agnes Burdett Coots became a patron and long-standing friend. It was at this time that Sir Francis Grant painted the famous portrait Sadly, a contemporary friend noted, quote, it did not look a bit like him. <laughs> How disappointing. <laughs> James returned to Sarawak in 1848, and sailing with him was Spencer Sinjan, his newly appointed private secretary, who would become a lifelong friend and his biographer. Also sailing with him was his elder nephew, John, a retired army captain of 25. Always known as Brooke, he was proclaimed Tuanvasar, his second in command. His younger nephew, Charles, a midshipman at 14, left the Navy to join his uncle's service four years later. In June 1848, the Anglican missionary Francis MacDougall and his wife Harriet arrived to establish a church and school, and they would become close friends. The Church of St. Thomas was consecrated in 1852. However, there was no aggressive attempts at conversion. James designed the Sarawak flag and, with Harriet's assistance on the only piano in the country, composed the Sarawak National War Song. By 1858, crudely printed currency notes were in circulation. Sarawak was beginning to acquire the trappings of a nation. Sadly, underneath, all was not well, as James' personal fortune was sadly eroded. Antimony was no longer prized on the European market, and other schemes did not prosper. In 1849, a minor rebellion had been crushed by Captain Farquhar, Royal Navy, and over £20,000 paid out in head money. Radical MPs such as Cobden and Bright raised questions in the House. James was no longer such a hero. Although he was acquitted by the Commission of Inquiry in 1853, 
His reputation was tarnished and the court's decision seen as a cover-up. The gung-ho attitude of the past was now under scrutiny and, as a result, the Navy could no longer be called upon to bolster his authority if required. Partly to counteract this and add stability to his ad hoc administration, in 1855 he established an advisory Supreme Council of the hereditary Malay chiefs. Once he had lost the automatic support of the Navy, a degree of uncertainty arose and a couple of his young officers were murdered. At about the same time, James caught smallpox, which left him severely scarred and depressed, even quarrelling with the MacDougalls. In 1857, a large band of Hakka Chinese, aggrieved by his attempts to impose his laws and taxes, attacked Kuching, burning his house and library. Ignominiously, James fled, leaving it up to his nephew Charles and the steamship from the newly founded Borneo Company <coughs> to chase them away. He returned to England after proclaiming Brooke his heir with total authority in his absence. Francis MacDougall believed the humiliation and the smallpox had a lasting detrimental effect on James' personality. While in England, James shocked everyone by announcing he had found an illegitimate son, George, serving in the army, and that after some additional education, he would be brought to Sarawak. Forced by Brooke into recognising this would never be accepted by the traditional Malays, he backtracked, finding George a place in the merchant navy and remembering him in his will. The truth, of course, can never be substantiated. Certainly, Evidence appears to show that James preferred the company of somewhat less educated, younger men over that of women. When in England, he was greatly helped by the renewed friendship with Agnes Burdett Coots. She lent him £5,000, interest-free, contributed to the purchase of his country house in Devon, Burato, and provided him with a new steamer. They were in regular correspondence, and he described her as his guardian angel. Still annoyed his position was not recognised by the British government, she wrote letters on his behalf to her friends in high places. And, as I already said, this was finally recognised in 1863. Then there was another shock, because James began writing letters trying to find a purchaser for Surawa in order to recoup his fortune. Although he was not successful, this was yet another matter to infuriate Brooke, who, somewhat naturally, felt Surawa was his inheritance. Arriving in Singapore en route to Surawa in February 1863, James was challenged by Brooke over the question of the succession. And... He was immediately dismissed and banished, broken and grieving for his one, sorry, his wife and all but one of his children. He returned to England, dying in 1868. James would continue his efforts to find a buyer, and it was not until 1867 
but he finally nominated his nephew Charles as his heir. During James' absence in England in 1859, a number of senior Malays, supported by Brunei, in alliance with some tribal Dayak, conspired to seize power, and two of Charles' closest friends were murdered at Kanuit Fort, determined to retrieve their heads, and with the support of loyal volunteer Dayaks, he attacked and the conspiracy fell apart. In 1861, the most famous Dayak of all, Rentat, had gathered a thousand warriors on the inevitable promise of heads and booty. While legend has it that Charles slept on the ground, wrapped in the Sarawak flag, with a copy of Child Harold in his pocket, he was not the hero who sent them flying. It was the cannon made by the Chinese in Kuching to his design, which had been hauled upriver, and it was that that brought the victory. At its first shot, it killed Rentat's best gunner, and his blood poured over all the ammunition, rendering it useless. The story and the cannon itself, you can see on display in the museum today. Later, in 1863, Charles led the final expedition against the Kayan tribe, who had protected the murderers of his friend in 1859. Following its successful outcome, Sarawak was, in Charles' words, without an enemy in the world and without any intertribal war of any description. As a result, and confident in the abilities of his nephew, James left Sarawak in September that year for the last time. He spent his final years in his large, isolated house, Baratal, in Devon, dying there on June the 11th, 1868. It was left to his private secretary and loyal friend, Spencer Sinjan, to leave a record of his life and achievements. He is buried in the graveyard of Sheepstore Church. All subsequent Rajas are buried in the churchyard, and their achievements noted in plaques on the wall of the little church of St. Leonard. Hanging on the south wall is a ceremonial blanket, a gift from the people of Sarawa. I should like to end this half of my talk with words from James himself, which can be found on the plaque. Sarawa belongs to the Malays, the Sea Dayak, the Land Dayak, the Kayans, and other tribes not to us. It is for them that we labour, not ourselves. Well done, James. Mm -hmm. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr T podcast studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group. Music